This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As you know, from time to time, the opportunity comes along for me to invite historians and authors on to discuss their work. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Kate Anderson Brower while she was in town for a speaking engagement. Kate is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Residents and First Women, also a New York Times bestseller, as well as Team of Five, First in Line, and the children's book, Exploring the White House. The Residence is being made into a television series produced by Shonda Rhimes for Netflix. Her most recent book, Elizabeth Taylor, is the first authorized biography of the icon. Kate is a CNN contributor and covered the Obama administration for Bloomberg News. She is also a former CBS News staffer and Fox News producer. Kate has written for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and the Washington Post. She lives outside of Washington, D.C. with her husband, their three young children, and their Weedon Terrier. Kate and I had a conversation about the role of First Lady in the modern era, as well as some of the fascinating individuals who have had that title from the 1960s on. I cannot thank Kate enough for her time and for sharing her insights with all of us. And if you'd like to learn more about Kate and her work, her website is katebrower.com. I'll have a link to it on the page for this episode on my website, presidenciespodcast.com. I'd also like to thank Jasmine Bamlett for introducing me to Kate and making the arrangements for the recording. This podcast is all about connections, and I'm so appreciative of Jasmine's efforts to make it possible to share this conversation with all of you. Speaking of, without further ado, we'll get to the interview after this brief message. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Well, Kate, thanks so much for coming on Presidencies. I'm so excited to be able to have you on for our listeners. This is my first in-person interview, so I'm very excited. And I have a wonderful guest here. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is really exciting. So as our listeners know, the story and the history of Presidencies isn't just about the one person who serves as chief executive. There are so many other folks officials, as well as family members who really are a part of that history. And so the focus today is going to be on your research into the First Ladies, and we're going to dive into some more modern First Ladies that we haven't gotten to thus far in presidencies. So I wanted to begin with a quote from your book, um, First Women. 
It was from a letter to Betty Ford during her tenure as First Lady, and the quote stated, you are constitutionally required to be perfect. (laughs) And this kind of notes the difficulty of navigating this ill-defined but still critical role on the national stage. So we'll dive into a little more of what makes these individuals distinctive in a bit, but to get us started, can you speak to some of the common experiences shared while inhabiting the role by many, if not all, of the women who have served as First Lady since Jackie Kennedy in the 1960s? Well, I think that quote sums up a lot of the problems with the position because, in fact, there's nothing in the Constitution that uh, explains what the job is. There's absolutely nothing about what the president's spouse should do. So there's no constitutional requirement to be perfect in any way. But I think the American public has very high expectations for first ladies. There's a sense that they are kind of the, the country's mother, the maternal figure in the, the country that is guiding us through difficult times. I mean, you look at Laura Bush after 9-11, a lot of people turned to her for comfort. And she actually did something pretty profound after 9-11. She uh, was the first first lady to do a presidential radio address. And she talked about girls' education in Afghanistan. And she spoke out on those issues. So I think each first lady has to carve out the role for themselves. And, you know, from Jackie Kennedy through to Dr. Biden, we see very different models of what a first lady can be, from traditional to more forward-thinking as the times change. And now we have a first lady who is a teacher at a community college, you know, and is somebody who I think to most people it's not that big a step to be working as a first lady, but it is pretty profound that almost every day during the week she's leaving the White House and interacting with the outside world and bringing that experience back home to her husband. And I think in a lot of ways, it's it's very powerful to have a first lady with a job outside the White House. Absolutely. And it's interesting. And, you know, listeners know that we've covered some of the original, the first first ladies, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison. And we see even then this ill-defined role and, and not really an official role and still having a role. And so it's interesting. It's interesting to read in your book how we've still got that the office is really shaped and reshaped by the individual and by the circumstances. And as media has grown, and as you noted with Laura Bush, you know, the possibilities and, and the ways to serve the administration, but then also a larger purpose, a larger public and, and civil service is amazing and, and that it's still constantly being reshaped. Absolutely. And if you look at someone like, you know, Michelle Obama, um, she was a, obviously an incredibly important first lady as the first black first lady in our country's history. But you also see this incredible amount of pressure they face in the media. You know, there's, uh, I I think for her especially, 
there was a lot of backlash, there was racism, and you're facing that every day. And so I think there are there are positive things, obviously, about social media and the way people can interact now, but also very negative things. And you wouldn't expect someone like Mary Todd Lincoln, who could be at times very unpopular in our country because of how much money she liked to spend and her mental health challenges. But it wasn't as though she would wake up every day and see people talking about her. Um, She could close herself off. And I think First Lady is now face an enormous amount of pressure. Absolutely. And, you know, with that... And you really do, in, in your work, detail the differing approaches that each of these first ladies took to coping with their responsibilities to their family and to the role. And one that really stood out to me as a particularly difficult tenure was that of Lady Bird Johnson. And, you know, and especially thinking of this was a time that media was becoming a larger presence. And as you said, Kate, not being able to escape the sometimes negative portrayals of her husband, of what was going on. And you wrote in your book that, quote, she, i.e. Lady Bird, learned to build a cocoon of calm around herself over the years, one that made life with Lyndon and life in the White House more tolerable. So would you mind speaking more about Lady Bird and the challenges that she faced as First Lady? I'm glad you asked about her because I think she's such a fascinating woman and such a a smart force uh, behind Lyndon Johnson. It's funny because when he first ran for Congress, he didn't even tell her he was running. Uh, She saw him getting all dressed up and asked him what he was doing, and he just said he was going to go campaign. And that kind of shows you how he discounted her early on. And then over the years, their relationship changed, and he began to really rely on her. She is the first First Lady to have, like, a real campaign. Jackie Kennedy, of course, was all about bringing back historic pieces of furniture to the White House, which was very important, but she had a short tenure in the White House. And here you have Lady Bird coming in after JFK's assassination. You know, I I became close to Lady Bird's social secretary, Bess Abel, who was an incredible woman, and she talked about the transition and how difficult it was, you know. Normally, there's a celebration and there are inaugural balls, but with the Johnsons, they're coming into a house and mourning black fabric over all the chandeliers, people devastated and shocked, and the, and the resident staff who grew to love JFK in mourning. And so Lady Bird went ahead and had fresh-baked muffins and bread, and she wheeled them up and down the halls of the White House and delivered them to Kennedy's staff who were transitioning some of them to work for Johnson. And she went out of her way to really try to endear herself to the chief usher of the White House and the housekeepers. But she had the Highway Beautification Act, which is an incredible thing. I mean, back in the day, and you and I don't know, weren't around for this, and most people listening wouldn't know, but there were billboards everywhere. You would drive on the highway, and it was just a mess. And she got her husband to pass an act through Congress that would limit the number of billboards and just make the the driving experience a little bit less um, busy and kind of clunky because there are pictures of America's highways in the 50s and 60s, and it's it's not so pleasant. So a ladybird was all about enjoying nature, and she wanted everybody to have access to that. 
And Lyndon Johnson could be very difficult to deal with. He was, I have stories in my book about the White House shower and how obsessed he was with it and how he, you know, was really abusive towards her, you know, mentally, uh, you know, there's not evidence of physical abuse that I know of, but it was a very difficult marriage and she was strong. She's an incredible woman. Well, and it's so interesting. I actually um, was listening to a podcast and they were talking about some of her recordings that folks are coming back to and to be able to get more of her perspective. It's just, it's fascinating. We don't always get that. And to hear, and especially in that transition, that difficult transition, it's just, it's really powerful to think about and to think about what it took for her to be in that place and to be respectful and mindful while at the same time knowing the responsibilities that were coming. Yeah. And she was also somebody who had a profound impact on actual legislation, not only the Highway Beautification Act, but the Civil Rights Act. She drove across country. She would come back and forth from Texas to D.C. And their um, housekeeper was a was a black woman she was very close to. And they would take these cross-country trips in the car. And in the South, she couldn't stay at a lot of hotels. They wouldn't, they would struggle to find hotels where the two of them could even just spend the night. And Lady Bird was so angry because every time she was turned down, she would drive further and and she would refuse to stay separately from her friend and she would report back to her husband and um, I think a lot of the job of the first lady is to be the eyes and ears for the president because they are really kind of cloistered off and they're in a vacuum and they're surrounded by people especially in Johnson's case who were afraid of him so that was super important for her to be able to say like this is wrong And she was so brave. She went and traveled south and, you know, helped her husband win the election. Even after the Civil Rights Act was passed, there was a lot of anger in the south. And she took this amazing train trip, which is like a book in itself, where she faced hecklers. And But she said that, you know, we have to love each other and that segregation is wrong and discrimination is wrong. And there were KKK members that were threatening to kill her and place bombs on the train tracks. And it's like that train story is is like you could make a movie out of that. It's just so amazing what she did. Absolutely. And that's still, every time I read about that, I always want to know more. I want to yeah. know more of the details because it is so fascinating, especially at a time that, you know, there were politicians who weren't willing to do that for fear of their safety and Lady Bird says, this is the right thing to do. This is what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And that she could be a voice because she grew up in the South and she knew what what that mentality was like, but she she could talk to them about how it was time to make a change. And uh, yeah, you're right. A lot of politicians weren't brave enough to do it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things that we really get a sense of with your work is the challenges and, and the bravery of some of these women, some of these individuals who are, in many cases, taking up a role that they didn't necessarily want. And one that also had a particularly difficult time that you talked about in your book was Pat Nixon. And that really got my attention. You write in your book that, quote, 
Pat Nixon was prepared to be a first lady in 1960 when her husband ran against Jack Kennedy and lost, but she had absolutely no desire for him to run again in 1968. In the White House, she was nicknamed Plastic Pat because she was simply exhausted playing the role of political wife. So, Kate, would you mind speaking more about the role that Pat Nixon adopted as first lady and how this led to conflict with members of the Nixon administration? Well, I mean, her her time as first lady was very difficult because her marriage to Nixon was not particularly warm. Um, and she was an old-fashioned woman. You know, she stood by him. A lot of her time in the White House was defined by Watergate and the controversies surrounding it and the the years of it kind of unraveling, not knowing what was going to happen. And she trusted her husband. And um, I interviewed Connie Stewart, who was Pat Nixon's chief of staff. And um, she told me that, you know, it was kind of like, if your husband's cheating on you and you secretly know it, you don't want to face it. And so she believed that Pat Nixon knew that her husband had lied or was covering things up, but she couldn't face it. And the staff wanted to really protect her. They wouldn't give her newspapers. She got very thin. She was barely eating, really depressed and ashamed and embarrassed. And I think that, yeah, I mean, he had run for office against JFK and lost. And that was, you can imagine that she had geared herself up for that moment And then you have years later going back to it. And I think Haldeman and Ehrlichman were very difficult. It's been noted by many people, personalities, and they really kept her out. Um, Her East Wing was not treated with a lot of respect. She wasn't consulted on a lot of things that first ladies are usually consulted about, including state dinner guests, menus, these things that are in their purview were kind of taken up by the president and his advisors. And so that led to a lot of hurt feelings and resentment. But her staff was very loyal to her. They loved her. They said she was a really kind woman. It's just a really uh, difficult moment in our history. Well, and, and that was something interesting that you wrote about was, you know, having, and, and we don't, I think we would, think even nowadays that this is kind of odd that staff in the administration were wanting to get involved in their marriage and were making these comments and sometimes disparaging comments against her, advising the president, oh, well, you need to show a little more affection towards your (laughs) wife and just how... I mean, it's just, it's an odd situation. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of icky, right? (laughs) It's like, yeah, it was like, you know, hold her hand, be affectionate. And and you have to think back to those times. I mean, even the Kennedys weren't super affectionate in public. And it's something that's really changed over time. And I'm trying to think of the first example of a president and first lady who have been, I mean, the Obamas certainly are very affectionate. The Bushes maybe a little bit. So, you know, they, they held hands and you could see some of that. But it, it's – it's and then look at the Gores. I mean, they were the most affectionate and now they're divorced. So yeah. I'm not sure how much the public PDA has to do with the but, – but for the president's advisors, it was like, you know, you're right. You have to kind of make it seem like you have a good marriage. People want to see 
that affection between a president and first lady, at least to some extent. We don't need to see like makeout sessions yeah. or anything. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't need to we see do that not with want, Nixon. <laughs> no, we do not want to see that with Nixon or really any president, to be honest. <laughs> but it's interesting. It just speaks to the nature of that administration that they were so, they were wanting to micromanage everything, mm-hmm. not just in the West Wing, but in the East Wing as well. And it just, it, it was an odd political time for the presidency. It was so hard for her because they didn't even know, like, when when they were going to leave. And she was on pins and needles not knowing. And, in, in fact, the resident staff, the people, like, the maids, the butlers, the, uh, you know, the chefs, they didn't know until Pat Nixon asked for them to start boxing up their belongings. Because when it finally happened, it was almost like this anticlimactic thing because the Watergate hearings, they'd been going on for months and months and they had been, you know, dragging on. And I remember talking to Trisha Nixon, one of the Nixon's two daughters, and she just described how the staff was crying and emotional and and so sad for them, and they felt so much loyalty. I mean, the staff feels so much loyalty. And so it's heartbreaking each time. A, and this is the only president to actually resign. It was a shock, a huge shock. Yeah. Well, and, and it was interesting to hear the perspective of some of the children as well, you know, the Nixon daughters, but then also when you were talking about the Fords, the involvement of their family, and and to hear some of those perspectives as well. But with the Nixons especially, that you have the daughters even up to the last moment, you know, fight this, fight this, Mm -hmm. you know, really being heavily invested in this. And it's it's not something that people necessarily think of when it comes to presidential history, but it also makes sense. This is a family matter. This is something that's very personal to them, even though it's national politics. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't even go to Julie's graduation, yeah. Pat Nixon and, and the president, because there were people protesting. And you, you mentioned earlier how difficult it is, you know, life in the White House. It, during the Johnson administration, um, Lucy Johnson told me that in the second floor bedrooms, they could hear people protesting the Vietnam War across the street. And, you know, the, the famous um, protests of LBJ, how many boys did you kill today? You know, it's like your father is just under attack and he should be right because he is making these decisions and is the most powerful person in the world. But you're a child. Um, They were adults by then, but like they had children that they were raising in the White House and it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's complicated for the families. But then also one of the things that you wrote about was the conflict between the East Wing, which is the First Lady staff, and the West Wing, or the President staff, with each successive tenure. That this was kind of a common feature, trying to figure out what the role of each was and where that line stood or was crossed. And so, Kate, would you mind sharing with the audience an example or two? You know, we talked about the the Nixon White House, but an example or two of the most challenging East Wing versus West Wing relationships that you found in the course of your research? Well, there are so many. I think there's not a single example from Jackie Kennedy to uh, Melania Trump that didn't have that kind of tension. I was thinking about that question because 
I'm interested in how history will be written about the Biden administration and what Dr. Biden is facing, because we have a really unique situation with what's going on with Hunter. And here you have a first lady with her son under investigation. He's coming to the White House. There's a lot of controversy about this and the idea that she's, I'm sure, will uncover the West Wing, I would imagine, I don't know, is telling them, listen, he shouldn't come to the White House. We need you to put some distance between yourself and your son. And just like the emotions behind that, you love your son, you think this is an unfair political witch hunt, and you're not, you know, yet he did do something wrong, but you you want to keep him close because we're seeing addiction playing out and we're seeing kind of a more honest conversation about this this blended family, and it's messy. So that will be really interesting. But in the past, you know, Betty Ford really wanted President Ford to nominate a woman to the Supreme Court. He did not. And um, when she was making her case, Cheney and Rumsfeld, who worked for Ford, you know, were saying she's got to, like— She's got to let up on us on this. And and President Ford said, if you want to talk to Betty, you know where her office is. Walk down the hall. You talk to her. I'm not doing it. So there's always this tension about how much they want to do. I think with the Obamas, Michelle Obama was really strict. And I know because when I was a reporter, we would travel to the West Coast and they would make these all you know, they'd be there for the day and they'd come back in time to have dinner with their kids. I mean, these crazy flight schedules. It was very important to her that they have dinner every night as much as they could in the residence together. And when she would see a schedule that didn't allow for that, or when she was asked to do things that she thought weren't that important or wouldn't have a huge impact, she would call the president's chief of staff and say, I'm not doing this. And there's always tension between the first lady, often tension, and the president's chief of staff, who in Michelle Obama's case, you know, she was the closer. She was the one you sent her out there. She could talk to a crab. And also in Michelle Obama's uh, Obama's case, at the very beginning of the campaign, uh, with David Axelrod, there was the president's advisor. There was a lot of tension because she kind of said some things that were very controversial when she said, it's the first time I'm proud of my country, for instance. He had to sit her down and show her that video. And I think she didn't understand why people were reacting to her the way they were. And so that's also a really difficult thing where you're showing somebody a video of themselves campaigning and saying, you need to have a softer tone. You need to talk this way to get people to like you. And I think as a woman, we're always told to smile and say certain things. And I think that it's very frustrating. And the West Wing is usually men. We've never had a female chief of staff. I think Kellyanne Conway is one of the most senior women in the White House. And now we have Kamala Harris as VP, which is a great thing to see more women because I think um, there's a sense of having been through being told by men what to do. And, and, and a professional woman like Michelle Obama, who was making more money than her husband before he became president, you know, it's very uh, demoralizing and frustrating and impersonal if you feel like people don't like you. So she had to change the way she was speaking. And especially for a role that wasn't necessarily one that she would want or many of these 
individuals would want. And then to have this added layer of, yet again, you've got these men in the West Wing who are telling a yeah. woman, here's what you need to do. And really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit, um, it's a little frustrating and pretty unfair. And I think until we see more diversity and more people from different backgrounds, I think it's it's going to continue to be that East Wing, West Wing tension. Well, and especially, you know, there's been so much talk, especially in the last 10 years or so, of that the day when there's a first gentleman versus mm-hmm. a first lady, what does the East mm-hmm. Wing look like at that point? Mm-hmm. What does the role change into at that point? Mm-hmm. And, of course, right now that's theoretical. And we're also seeing some of that with the second gentleman. The fact that we do have a second gentleman now, again, not necessarily the same type of role, but we're starting to see some of what may be to come when that possibility happens. I hope so. I mean, I know that Doug Emhoff, Kamala Harris's husband, is very defensive and protective of her and that he's been the one going to the West Wing saying, why are you not helping her more? Because there's a lot of controversy about her staff and people like to say she's not doing enough. And I, for one, don't really see a lot of that in actuality. I don't see her doing anything particularly wrong because being vice president is just an impossible job no matter what. <laughs> but I love that he is the one as her husband who's who's going to the West Wing and complaining to them because it's always been a woman's job. It's always been Nancy Reagan going to the chief of staff and saying, what's wrong with this scenario? And why does he, you know, Iran Contra, she was very mad about how her husband was being portrayed and not protected. And now you have a man who's mad about his wife not being protected. And I, I think that's great to see. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting because we have, and, and it seems like from your research and your work that you're also interested, as I am, in these roles that are there but not really that well-defined. And mm-hmm. even though the vice presidency is something that is a constitutional office, it's still one that is so ill-defined and has changed so much over time. And it's interesting to see what happens when different individuals come to it and what they're able to make of it and successful opportunities for folks, but then also just this weird quagmire of what am I supposed to be doing here? <laughs> yeah. And who's doing what? <laughs> <laughs> you we're seeing that play out with Vice President Harris. We're seeing it play out with Mike Pence. Yeah. You know, he thought he was doing his job and he was on January sixth, in my view. But his approval ratings are not so great. You know, that we haven't seen a vice president and a president have this tension Already, you know, usually vice presidents, when they're running, like when Al Gore was running, he would be talking up Clinton's record, right? And trying to kind of ignore that Lewinsky situation. And now we have um, Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and it seems that Mike Pence is not. He's kind of campaigning on a very difficult moment for the man he worked for. So it's, it's, it's a lot of tension. And the Trump era is a really different beast altogether because it's so unprecedented. I interviewed President Trump in the Oval Office and it was so strange because I hadn't been there since the Obama administration and it was 
in the early years of the Obama administration and just everything was different. And you see how how quick there's so much that happens in that house physically. All the photos are different. All the staff is different. The tone is different. And these presidents are very uh, charismatic, as you know. And so he is very charismatic in person. And whether you agree with him or not, they kind of reel you in. And I think part of it is the office. You're, you're in the Oval Office. So that person is the most powerful person in the world. And I think people get kind of not brainwashed, but I think there's a feeling of it's just a very intimidating thing. And I think it's so important that journalists ask tough questions and aren't intimidated by it. Absolutely. And, and we see you know, that was part of the intent of the White House. And we see it from Thomas Jefferson on the inhabitants of that that residents have really tried to utilize that space to, in some cases, you know, have the upper hand. You know, space is important. And it's interesting how it constantly shifts over time with each president and what they bring to it. But also knowing that there is that key, like you said, that, that charisma especially in the modern era, is important. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that has helped to reshape the role of the First Lady, being more visible and having to be out in front of the cameras. And when they're not, or when there's, you know, like you said with Michelle Obama, when you say something that's misconstrued, Mm And it becomes the new story. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so fascinating how all that has changed in the modern era and continues to change. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Melania Trump, she's somebody who just didn't seem to care about expectations, you know, and in some ways that's uh, refreshing because so many first ladies feel this intense pressure to move, uproot their family, move to the White House right away. I know from Michelle Obama, that was very stressful. Their two daughters were so young. And here's Melania Trump saying, I I want Barron to finish school in New York and we'll move when we're ready. A lot of people didn't like that. I thought that was a good thing. I I actually think that's great. I think that these women shouldn't feel so much pressure um, when they have young children in the White House. But then throughout the administration, we just saw her as her husband became more and more divisive as his term went on. I think she kind of started to feel like, well, what's the point? You know, I'm going to just live my life separately and not try to please everybody. Well, and it speaks to, you know, we think of the First Lady primarily in that that public role, but these are also mothers. These are also, you know, they're tending to their families. They're trying to make sure that their families are taken care of as well. And I think the general public tends to think of the presidency as presenting a challenge to carve out time for the first family to come together. But you note that the relationship between Jack and Jackie Kennedy, quote, had grown closer in the White House than it had ever been before, while Hillary Clinton, quote, saw more of her daughter in the White House than ever before. Mm -hmm. So in your research, Kate, did you find that these instances were more of the norm or exceptions for modern first families, that they had 
in some cases, more time to come together became closer in the experience. I mean, I think I think in almost every instance, it is a bunker mentality because you are living above the shop. You know, you are there every day. Uh, you know, often, obviously, the president and first lady are traveling, but the campaigns are so brutal. And if they're members of Congress, like Gerald Ford was traveling, I think it was something like 200 days a year uh, campaigning for other uh, members, Republicans. And so in the White House, the Fords could see each other. And then there's, there is a sense of, especially the earlier, like the, the 60s and 70s First Ladies, it was empowering for them to have this important role. I mean, Jackie Kennedy on the campaign thought that people would think she was too rich and not um, relatable. And there was fear of that. And then all of a sudden they saw that she was a huge asset. And on inauguration night, there's a great story where JFK is in the limo and he pushes Jackie Ford so everyone can get this great photo of her. And that they could see that women around the country in the world were trying to dress like her and look like her. And so she was able to help him for the first time. And for her, that was empowering. I think that that made her so happy to be an asset and not uh, not in any way detracting, but only adding to his allure. And then, you know, the way she manipulated the whole Camelot myth after he died and turned it into this, what we know now, there was a lot of dark things going on in their marriage. He cheated all the time on her, but she was so deft at manipulating the story and making us believe that this was this golden moment. And I think that speaks for her deep love of him and her also just really smart. I mean, she was she was speaking French fluently with Charles de Gaulle. She got the Mona Lisa over to the U.S. for the first time because she was able to convince him to let her do it. I mean, it was just, she was an amazing woman. And I think that's one thing that, that you really do highlight in your work is this crafting this role that the first ladies have in helping to craft their husbands' legacies, and especially with so many that are and have been involved in the presidential libraries after their husband passes away, and trying to help to guide that how they're remembered, and it it is fascinating because then it comes back to understanding their role in that and understanding the the power that they can have in that experience. Mm-hmm. And I think for the Kennedys, it was especially challenging because, you know, they, he wasn't, usually the president is alive for several years and they can raise money that way. But she had to um, really rely on the Kennedy family and, and this this legacy that she had crafted for him. It's wonderful to see, like, Nancy Reagan with the Reagan Library. You know, she would be found just sitting by her husband's gravesite, and she would go and visit the library all the time. And I think Lady Bird Johnson, you know, she lived decades after her husband died and tried to help craft his legacy. They did not like stories, obviously, of how difficult he could be. I think there's always a sense of trying to control the first lady's office as a reporter is always harder. When I was at Bloomberg, it was harder to get information sometimes from them than from the West Wing. Because like you said earlier, there's this feeling of, well, she wasn't, she didn't run for office. 
you know, she didn't ask for this life. And so we don't need to tell you what she's going to be doing tomorrow until we're ready, you know, and there's that feeling of protecting her and the staff, the East Wing staff really feels bound to the first lady because they have a first front row seat to seeing how tough that position is. Well, and Kate, as we're wrapping up our conversation, I want to bring us back to this quote from your book. Most will not admit it publicly, but all these women realize their power, especially once they see their poll numbers eclipsing their husbands. (laughs) So in that context, I was wondering if you could speak to how you've seen the role of the modern First Lady involve as you've researched these individuals, but then also how you think that it may continue to evolve. Well, I think, as you said, the more you you can't be something that you don't see. Right. So I think when we see uh, Vice President Harris, you know, a woman of color, a woman in that role, that almost seems like an afterthought now. People are not really that talking about it that much. But that's extraordinary because now there are little girls who are going to see somebody like them in that position. My hope is that, you know, with Dr. Biden working, we could have a first lady who is a doctor or, you know, a writer. I mean, I I think a teacher is a unique position because there's not going to be a lot of conflicts of interest. So in some of these different jobs, it really depends on the job, right? But it's still important to see that you can have something that's your own that's outside of what your husband is doing. And I think a lot of people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election back in 2016. And I was thinking about Bill Clinton and I was writing stories about it, thinking about it. And he would have changed that role dramatically, obviously. But as a former president, you know, they would have probably used him as an envoy in different countries. I think it'll be interesting to see a woman who has a husband who is maybe not working, you know, doing that traditional taking care of the kids, stay at home role, doing what Michelle Obama did for Barack Obama, taking his career as a backseat. So I think the more that we see, the more we can imagine what that could be like. And these are baby steps. And, you know, it's like one step forward, two steps back. I mean, that's the story of American history, really. And so my hope is that, you know, in a hundred years, people will think, well, this is ridiculous. We've had two two female presidents since this conversation. You never know. Um, but I, I think it's all positive uh, that they're, they're, that we're seeing more diversity and more uh, women at the table. Because, you know, Betty Ford, there's a great photo of Betty Ford standing on the cabinet room table the last day the Fords were in office. And she said, this is as close as I'm ever going to get to a seat at the table. Because it was ridiculous back then to think that a woman could be in the cabinet in a really, you know, high-ranking position. And so now we kind of take for granted that we have a woman who is a vice president of the United States. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. And it, and you know, thinking of 100 years from now and thinking yeah. back 100 years and, you know, especially the 19th century first ladies, there are some that we just know so little about. And in some cases, that was intentional because it was seen as, well, their husband is the one who's the public facing and I'm just in this role. And between media and how much more visibility we have to the first family, 
but then also the changing nature of society and culture and expectations, it really does speak to 100 years from now, this can all be completely different. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you're talking about a time when women's, what your name was supposed to appear in print, birth, marriage, and death announcement. You were not supposed to get a lot of public attention. And now I think... Like you said, we're seeing we're we're becoming more comfortable with women taking up space in the political discussion. Look at Hillary Clinton. She tried to do it as first lady. It backfired for her. She had a West Wing office. She tried to take up health care. Her poll numbers plummeted. So sometimes people are a little ahead of their time. And maybe we'll have another first lady before we have a female president. Who knows? And who is who is kind of like Hillary and will be more accepted in that role. I think that will be interesting to see. Absolutely. And in the meantime, thank you so much for being here. This has been a wonderful conversation about the modern first ladies and more. (laughs) And so I cannot thank thank you. you enough for the insight that you provided to the audience. And if our audience members want to learn more about you, um, how would they find you on social media or on the internet? Yeah. Um, well, I have. I, I don't love Twitter or X or whatever it is now. <laughs> it's at at Kate Brower, B R O W E R. But I have a Facebook author page that's Kate Anderson Brower, and um, an Amazon book page as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much again to Kate Anderson Brower for sharing her time and insight with us. I cannot recommend her work enough. I read her book, First Women, in preparation for this episode, but she has an extensive and ever-growing bibliography that would be of interest to Presidency's listeners, including The Residents, Team of Five, First in Line, and for our younger listeners, the children's book, Exploring the White House. Her most recent work is Elizabeth Taylor, the first authorized biography of the cultural icon. You can find out more about these works at Kate's website, which is katebrower.com. A link to our website will be available at my website, presidenciespodcast.com. There, you can also find past episodes of the podcast, links to resources on all of the American presidents, and information about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the Presidency's podcast. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast, check out his website at yourpodcastpal.com. I'll have a link to Christian's website on the page for this episode on my website as well. If you'd like to reach out to me, feel free to shoot me an email at presidenciespodcasts, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media if you don't already and reach out to me there. I'm on Facebook, Post, Mastodon, and Blue Sky as Presidencies, on the formerly known as Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads as Presidencies Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and I cannot thank you enough for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. 
Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.